Hi, everybody. Welcome back to Vox Tablet. It's me, Sarah Ivry. I'm your host. Today, following in the footsteps of a young refugee. The steady stream of people currently fleeing Syria for Europe is a sobering story. I was particularly gripped by a story in The New Yorker earlier this year that followed the trials and challenges faced by one man who was desperate to get to Sweden where his brother had already moved. But the plight of refugees leaving the region, as leaving elsewhere in the world, is not new. Some 40-odd years ago, Cynthia Kaplan-Shamash was just nine years old when her family, they were Jews, tried to get out of Iraq in 1972. They failed at first. A second attempt was a success. Cynthia is now a dentist in the United States. But the move came with great personal losses. Cynthia Kaplan-Shamash writes about their experiences in a new memoir called The Strangers We Became, and she joins us in the studio to talk about it. Cynthia Kaplan-Shamash, welcome to Vox Tablet. Thank you for having me. You begin the memoir with a harrowing story that I'd like you to share now about what happened when your family first tried to leave Baghdad in 1972. Yes, Sarah. Basically, we left with no choice but to leave. Jewish assets were frozen. Men could not resume work. Universities were closed for Jews. So really there was no other choice but to leave and gamble our lives, which we did. And we left the homes uh, as they were with the car in the driveway. And we gambled our lives through the north, through Arbil, where We were caught and imprisoned for about five to six weeks. And it was you, three siblings, and your parents? Correct. And what was it like in jail? Can you describe it for us a little bit? Um, At first, uh, for a child, through a nine-year-old, ten-year-old eyes, it seemed surreal to me, uh, perhaps even a game. But when, when we were transported back to Baghdad and... My two sisters, my mother and I, were separated from my father and brother. And when we were brought to that jail where I can still see the image with high ceilings, no windows, and women dispersed on marble floors, and they looked like what you expect a person to look like that haven't seen daylights in years, Uh, when the guard opened the door of that jail, reality hit me. They were threatening you. Um, Not only they were threatening me, but I realized that once we go through that gate, I don't know how long it will be till we get released. And I remember my sister's image, uh, Linda, who is like nine years older than me, literally dropping to the floor, kissing the guard's feet to please not let us in, to please give us a chance to stay out. But of course, that didn't happen. Let me ask you, uh, I mean, you said it was impossible to be a Jew in Iraq at that point in the early 70s. Men and women couldn't work. I mean, men mostly who were working outside the home. Schools were off limits to Jews. Assets were frozen. So why... If Iraq was persecuting the Jews so much, why not just allow them all to leave at that point and just be uh, free of the Jews altogether? Um, I guess that's the joy of dictatorship, um, to have prisoners in the country. 
we were really prisoners. I mean, we could, besides uh, not being allowed to resume life uh, as the others had, no telephones in the house, um, uh, for example, was another restriction on the Jews, uh, not allowed to walk away from the home more than a few miles. We were also watched by uh, Ba'ath uh, men on the block, watching our every move, monitoring anything that came to the house, boxes, letters, letters that would be open for misinterpretation um, to their will. I want to talk a little bit about your parents. Um, Your mother was married to your father when she was just 18 years old. In fact, he was 24 years older than she, so that's quite a difference. How did that happen? What was that like? Well, apparently he saw her walking Uh, along the boardwalk of the Tigris River. And he knew that she was the pharmacist's daughter. And he went to the middle man, in this case the woman, Yehuda, and he told her he liked um, the pharmacist's daughter, Layla. So um, so the Yehuda went to speak to my grandmother, and they agreed. And so my father came to her parents, and she was coloring a notebook upstairs uh, on the sat- on the open balconies, uh, rooftops that we slept on. And she came down, and he was introduced to her, and uh, she told me that she got engaged. She said, okay, he, his looks are fine to her, and that was that. Wow. So just like in a day, they were yes. engaged. Yes. But even though your mom was so young, she showed really remarkable bravery. I mean, I'm thinking about the episode when your family was detained when they tried to first leave in 1972, and she was defiant in the face of the security police. Tell us what happened. Well, um, there were plenty of times where the Ba'ath party uh, men used to come and knock on the door like at 11 or 12 at night. Um, And I remember one time... um, my father was drinking shnina, which is diluted yogurt with dates. Uh, my mother put in dates, which was common, but especially he had diabetes. And the doorbell rang, and she told him, you go upstairs, I'm opening the door. And I remember clinging at her dress and hiding behind her hips. Um, and I remember their faces when they said, is your husband home? And she said, yes, why? And they said, we want to ask him some questions. She said, what do you want from him in the middle of the night? He told her, we just want to ask him some questions. And she asked him, why this discrimination? Why, just because we're Jews? And he said, no, no discrimination at all. And I remember at my age of nine, I admired how she answered them. And she said to them, no discrimination? The discrimination equals the distance from heaven to earth. Just because he's Jewish, he is not coming down. And they left. And they said, we'll come back another time. And she said, don't come back another time. And she closed the door. And of course, as I describe in the book, she clapped her hands together. And as if like uh, pushing the energy to never come back. And she said, Tfahim, and we cannot live here another day. Wow. How religious was your family? 
So since the arrival of the alliance and the influence of the British in Iraq, um, Judaism slowly but surely fell more and more to the background. Men dressed like the British, um, the women dressed very Western, uh, sleeveless, they looked like they just walked out of a department store uh, that you would see in the Western society. Although, like when men got together, like I remember my friend and my father with his acquaintances, they did know everything from the Torah. They recited everything fluent, but they didn't practice it as much. It seemed to me in reading about your parents and actually about your mother, a big part of her Jewish identity um, was tied up with superstition. At every turn, she had some kind of saying uh, to utter or you tell this story at the end when you finally decide to move to America, she melts these silver balls in a pot over your head. And uh, I mean, these kinds of things seem so um, rich to me. Uh, I wonder, is that something that stands out for you, uh, a kind of fidelity to superstition as part of who you are as a Jewish person? Superstition was viewed as a part of a way to protect ourselves. It wasn't viewed as voodoo. It it was um, a part of coping. Um, For example, I describe how uh, my sister and I were playing hopscotch in front of our house and two Arab men walked by and they said, Nadbahkum Yahud. One day we will kill you, Jews. And perhaps just as much as the threat was, uh, my mother worry was that the scare may traumatize us um, and she had to do something about it. I think it, it, it gives a tremendous comfort to know that you can um, be proactive in doing something about these things, whether... They have an effect or not, uh, that, uh, that of course, we don't know. Uh, but I thought it was very comforting when she took us out at night and poured water on the ground and rubbed my belly and my sister bellies and knees and spoke to Mother Earth about our scare. It was tremendously comforting for me at that age. I mean, I guess really in a way it's just an extension of prayer. Perhaps, yes. The portrayal of your father that you create in the book is also very vivid, although he's a little bit more in the recesses. Uh, I wonder, how did leaving Iraq change him? Um, It took away his honor. He lost his place, number one, as the breadwinner, as the guide of the family. And he lost his place in society and he lost his place in a social structure. So it really depleted him from any honor. And I think for him as well as for many other men that left um, around the same area where there was uh, totally no support Uh, no encouragement, and they had to start from scratch in their old age, like he was around 65. 
I think that was um, what did him in. He died when you were still a child. He died when I was 10. Some of your family, your extended family, that is, had already left Iraq. They were in Israel. Mm -hmm. Why did your family not leave sooner than 1972? Um, I think it's human nature to think that things will blow over. Um, My father was an accountant for a British firm, uh, which is today called Ernst & Young. It used to be called Winnemary. And my parents had just married and they decided to stay, um, even though the rest of the family left in the big operation, what was called Ezra and Nehemiah, where 120,000 Jews had left between 1949 and 1951. They felt things will settle. It's just in an uproar now, um, but it will calm down. And they did not anticipate that the doors will close on them. We should, of course, explain your family had a failed attempt to leave in 72. Then you tried again and you were successful. You went first to Israel where you had family, your grandmother, uncles, cousins, and so forth. Uh, In fact, I was very taken in the book with your description of your arrival in Israel, not just of the arrival, but of the takeoff out of Iraq. Can you tell us a little bit what that was like first landing in Israel and seeing your grandmother for the first time? Yes. Well, uh, there were no direct flights uh, from Iraq to Israel. Uh, We had a visa for Turkey, and so we left to Turkey, and somebody from the Mossad came to take us to Israel. Of course, we had no contact whatsoever with the family that had left uh, 20 years uh, or so ago. And so when we got to the airport in Israel, they were contacted, and um, my grandmother, in her rush, put clothing over her clothing because she was completely in a state of shock that her daughter arrived in Israel. And um, it was like surreal to me. Like every woman that passed by, I thought, maybe that's my grandmother or maybe that's my grandmother. I had no idea the concept of a grandmother because my mother never spoke about her because then I would ask where she is and she could not tell me that she's in Israel. That word was never uttered. But you weren't there long. Uh, How long were you actually in Israel and why did your family choose not to stay? So there was a bit of a culture clash. Uh, It was not an extension of our culture in Iraq. It was more westernized. And on top of that, we also had a visa to Holland and my father had still the hope that he would resume his job in England that he left over 10 years before, since it's a British company. But uh, circumstances dictated otherwise. So your family landed in Amsterdam in 1973. And you're sort of shuttled around from different places to live, uh, in a, a room here, a room there. And then you're sort of put in a kind of public housing development and yet it seems uh, there was a sort of warmth there in your actual apartment, and you depict a really wonderful, warm feeling of community uh, among the Iraqi exiles there. Tell us a little bit about how that was woven together. As a matter of fact, uh, there was an Iraqi family on the ninth floor. There was an Iraqi family on the sixth floor. We were on the second, and there was another family below us. And uh, one on the ninth floor, 
ميد بليف شي هاد ان عراقي اولد فاشند كوفي شوب قهوه عزاوي اند سو شي يوز تو كول اس اند شي سيد ذا كوفي شوب از اوبن كم بليز اول كم اند وي بوت اون عراقي ميوزك اند وي دانسد اند وي ايت عراقي فود اند سو We comforted each other and we were united in exile and we made our own little mini culture there. And I think it really gave me enormous strength to feel amongst people that understood us. And, uh, they, well, the outside is the outside, but we have each other. When you were 12, a rabbi in Amsterdam arranged for you to go to London for several months and you lived there with... a Lubavitch family. What convinced your mother to let you go off on your own at such a young age and to be, uh, um, you know, to sort of immerse yourself in a completely different society and with a new family and a new social network and a new religious network? All my mother wanted to know is that I was in Jewish hands. And I remember one phone call because phone calls were not so um, uh, prevalent and easy and cheap as now. Uh, it was a whole big to-do. Um, I came to the phone and she said to me, where are you? I told her, I'm here with men with beards. And she said, oh, good, good. That's good. <laughs> that was it. That's all that she needed it. to know. <laughs> yes. And that was the end of the conversation. I was in good hands. Do you think in some ways your experience as a refugee uh, marked you? Absolutely. Absolutely. It, one cannot deny an experience like uh, exile. The, the, the trip goes with you and stays with you. It's an experience. It's like a genetic uh, mutation that, that, that just stays with me. And not only with me, I think I... Uh, Whether I'm aware of it uh, or not, I carry it to my children too. When you listen to the news today or read the newspaper and you see stories about the current refugee crisis or some people are saying they're migrants, they're probably both, fleeing war, poverty, persecution in Syria and from so many other places, what does that evoke for you? Honestly, I have sleepless nights. Um, I can visually relate to it. It disturbs me. It disturbs me so that at times I really not fun- I'm not functional for the day. What are you thinking in those times? What are you feeling? Um, I wish to tell them that there, there is hope. It takes time. You can have a happy ending to this tragedy. And... It takes time and strength and awareness for the people that are in exile and for the people that are rece- receiving the exiled, that they have to know these are not people from a point in time. What do you mean from a point in time? Uh, like you, you, you can see a person and you can see them through your eyes. They are here and look at them. They're not productive. They're not uh, achieving anything. They're dysfunctional. But people should also see 
where they are coming from. Like my mother always in Holland, when we had friends over, she used to bring the photo album. Look, this is me sitting on that fancy chair and that, this, that, that. What she's trying to tell them, that she didn't come from a hole in the wall. She had a life. She had a rich life with a lot of uh, wisdom and heritage. Cynthia Samash Kaplan, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Cynthia Shamash Kaplan is the author of The Strangers We Became, Lessons in Exile from One of Iraq's Last Jews. It's out now from Brandeis University Press and the University Press of New England. We've got some great news, listeners. Tablet Magazine, of which Vox Tablet is a part, has just launched a print magazine. It's gorgeous, it's smart, it's entirely different from what you'll find on our website. So do subscribe. You can do it. It's very easy by texting the word tablet to 66866. It's that easy. Go for it. And if you like Vox Tablet, make sure that you're a subscriber on iTunes or on any other podcast browser. Never miss an episode. Vox Tablet is produced by Julie Subrin. I'm your host, Sarah Ivory. We thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again, and happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.